0: Hi, I'm Winnie Da Silva. As a leadership strategist and executive coach, I've had the privilege of working with leaders from companies of all sizes and industries for over 20 years. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations. My guest today has been an artist and cultural academic leader for the past 20 years and is currently the president of the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. He has also served in leadership roles at the Kokoran School of the Arts and Design at George Washington University, Memphis College of Art, the California College of the Arts, and the Santa Fe Art Institute, among others. Additionally, he has taught at prestigious art schools, such as the Shristi School of Art, Design, and Technology in India, MIT, and the Art Institute of Chicago. As an artist and curator, his work has spanned various media and geographies.
1: Creative cultural leadership is a philosophy that embraces artistry and innovation alongside empathy, is a fundamental method for understanding the world, for working with individuals and communities, and is a fundamental method for solving problems. It's an approach to leadership for me. I wrote an essay back a year ago called Leading with Panic, why leaders need to be more open about anxiety, which detailed my struggles with having a severe panic disorder and how only a few people knew about my 20 year plus struggle with severe anxiety. Vulnerability and contemplation are two leadership qualities that are so important and so overlooked. The goal was to take a disability or what seems like a disability and reframe it as an asset for communication and for greater empathy.
0: Sanjit Sethi Thank you for being on my show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Winnie.
0: I'm looking forward to talking with you about your breadth of experience as an artist who became a leader. How did this journey come about?
1: I feel like I fall into the category of the accidental leader, in that my aspirations in college initially were to study anthropology and theology, and then I ended up discovering ceramics. Through that, this incredible world opened up that was both haptic and tactile, and at the same time, this historic medium. From there, had different incredible academic and learning opportunities. Then all of a sudden I found myself having the desire to want to build communities uh, around the construction and celebration of knowledge. Then through that came opportunities for leadership.
0: So then how did being an artist who then became a leader, how do these influence each other? How has being an artist influenced your leadership philosophy or approach?
1: For me, the creative and the poetic mindset go hand in hand with building communities. And that's where my leadership acumen has really started to exist and become more defined. But I don't think anyone grows up thinking they want to be a college president. That's something that you fall into. And some people maybe are more prepared than others. I'm hopeful that I have three qualities that maybe not all leaders possess, but some do. I tend to believe that through my arts design education, I have a belief that the world is asymmetrical in nature. Very few things actually fit in neat, tidy boxes. You can create as many org charts or diagrams as you want, but the real world exists in a much stickier and asymmetrical fashion. Another thing I learned from my own diverse educational experiences was this idea regarding failure there's something very tangible when the glaze falls off your vessel that's failure that iterative process regarding try fail learn in a much more tangible demonstrable way has provided keen insight to me in terms of leadership the last one is i come away with a fundamental belief that there isn't a problem in this world whether it's the design of a street sign or how you deliver medicine to underserved communities that doesn't have a cultural aspect to that problem. For me, those are some of the key things a creative-based education has provided me with a platform for the way I define leadership.
0: You describe yourself as a cultural academic leader. I know that cultural leadership is important to you, both in how you lead, but how you encourage others to leave. Could you talk about what cultural leadership means and what it looks like?
1: For me, I'd say it's less about an academic cultural leadership. I frame it as more creative cultural leadership. Creative cultural leadership is a philosophy that really embraces artistry and innovation alongside empathy is a fundamental method for understanding the world, for working with individuals and communities, because the two go hand in hand, and as a fundamental method for solving problems. It's an approach to leadership for me that hopefully recasts a traditional form of Western leadership. It's a leadership that inherently involves creativity, experimentation, uh, collaboration, it involves listening and decisiveness, but also an embrace and an elevation of your own voice alongside the voice of others instead of feeling like it's a solitary activity.
0: I love that definition of creative cultural leadership. Tell me a bit more about how this can also evolve outside of academia and the arts community.
1: Creative cultural leadership is something that can exist in so many different spheres. It's something we see individuals doing. It does not need to solely exist in the orb of academia. It does not need to solely exist in the orb of, of the arts. A long time ago creativity and innovation were interchangeable. And over time there was a separation and then innovation became claimed by the engineers and the scientists and calcified innovation as being practical. And creativity was claimed by artists and poets and musicians. And it became calcified around the preexisting notion they were flights of fancy. You're so innovative, Meaning that you're gonna solve the world. You're so creative. Oh, isn't that nice? One of my bigger goals is to be part of that dialogue that cinches those two words back together and reunites them, if you will. Because the world is at its best when we can't see the difference between creativity and innovation. And we see the practical and the impractical, the poetic and the process-oriented all in the same breath.
0: What do you think holds us back from embracing creativity and innovation in the way you've just described them? Like, what are we focused on instead?
1: I wonder if our focus on symmetry is intentional. It's the big head fake to not have you pay attention to the real issues that exist in the world, the issues that you should be focusing on. And it's, it's a missed opportunity. It says, I can't enact change on a system until we get the system more symmetrical from this rationale for racial segregation to looking at not wanting to go ahead and have more focused efforts to pick up garbage and the large garbage patch that's floating out in the Pacific. I think oftentimes we're stymied by this notion that the system has to be perfect before we try it.
0: So Sanjeet, you're in the middle of leading a university during a worldwide epidemic that has been going on for almost a year. Could you talk about One of the most difficult leadership challenges you've faced during this time?
1: My dream job of being president of this fantastic institution, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and you're asking me about challenges. Probably if I'm thinking over this last year, one of the single challenges I faced, it's how do I work with an incredible team that's really passionate about what they do and get them to not just look at solving the problem of the moment, but getting them to start to think about the vision for the future. As a leader, on one hand, support them, but also push them to say, I know you're tired, I know you're stressed about everything that's in our current frame, but at the same time, go ahead and say, No, we need to put the problems of today aside and we have to go ahead and push ourselves to think about the future. It's painful because really what I want to do to this team that I'm working with is give them all a break. I want to give them all fruit baskets and tell them to take a week off and go sleep and go outside. And what I have to do is say, no, I've got to get you in a mindset to think in a visionary capacity alongside me so that we can talk about the future. And it's painful because it's a group that's exhausted and, and they're exhausted from worry about about their team, our students, this community. And at the same time, the only way we're gonna grow and progress is if we make sure that some of our actions aren't just to solve today's problems, but our innovative actions can get us to where we wanna be.
0: Being a leader in higher education must be especially challenging right now.
1: For me, there are two fields that will never, ever, ever be the same again in a post-COVID-19 world. One is healthcare. The second one is higher education many operating principles regarding higher education are really they're up for grabs right now and they're being questioned and i think they should be questioned i think there's plenty of institutions that are hoping this will go away and people will go back to their college campuses but the institutions that are willing to not rely on tradition as a fail safe i think there is a series of different assumptions that institutions have been making for a while and it's important. How do we start to explode those assumptions? There's never been a better time to do that until right now. There's a series of fallacies. There's such a thing as a traditional student. There's no such thing as a traditional student. Our 18 to 21 middle class enrolled on campus full-time student exists, but they don't exist in the numbers that higher ed thinks they do or the notion that that your campus is for classes. It's your campuses for communities. So there's a bunch of different assumptions that I think are worth exploding and, and, and seeing how do you build something remarkable.
0: How do you balance out those changes? How do you balance the everyday problems while at the same time proactively shaping the future all while social distancing?
1: The short answer, Winnie, is that you balance it carefully. You balance it by listening by leaning in, which is hard to do because you're not sitting across the table from people anymore. What does leaning in look like and sound like in the time of COVID-19 and physical distancing? You know, at, at MCAD, we have avoided pretty early on using the term social distancing because we actually fundamentally believe that we need more social connectivity now than ever before. There is so much social isolation occurring, whether it's through People that have loved ones in old folks' homes or students not being able to engage with their peers, that really it's about physical and spatial distancing. So how are you able to listen? How are you able to create more points of contact, not less? Every time I meet with all the vice presidents at the college, we take that time to check in. And that time, on one hand, initially felt so decadent. Here we've got an agenda, the length of a yardstick, and you're going to go around the room and see how everyone's doing. But it's time well spent. How do you go against the grain of saying, no, let's get it all done? On the other hand, it's also about being really decisive and surgical about what you're wanting to spend time on. How do we cut through the chaff and to be more efficient in meetings so we can spend time with visioning? I find some of the hardest challenges I have is to get people, especially in this moment, to stay in that visioning space instead of dropping it back down to the ground to say, okay, let's take a deep breath. And the danger is that someone will say, gosh, you're an impractical leader. Leadership really is about how someone is able to judge when to leap from one moving freight train to another moving freight train and how to keep your hat during that leap. It requires a really good judgment of your speed, uh, the speed from the vehicle you're moving from to the other vehicle but you also have to tune out everything else. Oftentimes I'll get, we think you should act on this right away. And I'll have to say, wait a second, we need to wait. We need to know more. And and it creates a degree of discomfort. Part of that leadership is about how are you at home when other people are uncomfortable with you You either made a decision too quickly or you're making a decision. You're waiting uh, for that right moment. It's being at home uh, with the unease that everyone else feels. And that's, It's a very isolating experience. That's what separates executive leadership from other forms of leadership.
0: What else stands out in your mind as being a critical quality of leadership?
1: In our conversations in the past, it's about activating the, the following question. What do you know to be true that you think no one else in your field believes in? It's taking that question and activating it. That's I think what real executive leadership is. By asking, what do you know to be true that you think no one else in your field believes in, it is inherently isolating because you've got the idea that everyone else thinks is absolutely bonkers. It's your dogged pursuit of that while managing a team, while taking care of your staff, while going ahead and being a good communicator that I think sets one apart. And that's oftentimes the thing that gets compromised. Sometimes people forget that question.
0: How do you explore or think about the idea no one else believes in, in the context of leading a team?
1: First of all, I think you have to inspire people. You have to go ahead and create the space. The space you're going to talk about vision isn't necessarily the same space you're going to talk about. Do we have enough PPE, you know, equipment? The second thing is how do you inspire people and get people To think in this time of zoom, I did a leadership retreat with the vice presidents of the college and I didn't want them to prepare anything for it. No presentations. That's not entirely true. I lied there a little bit. I, I had them think about what these four strategic priority areas mean to you. But the first thing I did was I asked them an initial question. What does success look like at the college three years from now? But I also said, okay, take 25 minutes go for a walk, turn off your screens, take a nap, make yourself breakfast or eat breakfast and then come back and we'll talk because you can't simply turn on the light switch of visioning and say, okay, everyone vision, you can't do it uh, Automatically, and, and then you've got to celebrate the diverse responses but the other piece is you have to inspire people for example at this presentation i started to show pictures of architecture that i thought related to what we we're talking about and it's it's like a visual palette cleanse and i don't think that's just because we're in art school how do we create that visual space that pause for us to take a moment to ruminate to think about what's possible and to have people respond
0: what else is critical in keeping a team or your team motivated during difficult times
1: I, I think nonprofits generally suck at. Winnie is, and, and maybe it's not just nonprofits, is giving credit and taking the time to celebrate our accomplishments. We monkey bar, from one crisis that we've solved to another, or one enrollment cycle that we have to another. I take the enrollment team at, at MCAD, which in November this is their fever pitch season. And I want to send as many good vibes and baked goods as I can in their direction. As they embark on this process, or they're in the throes of recruiting the next incoming class, to MCAD from an entirely virtual recruitment season. I want to make sure we celebrate their accomplishments because they went from pre-COVID, we were about to welcome the largest incoming class the college had ever seen. And obviously COVID diminished that, but still they brought in this remarkable cohort of community members, not just students. They're going to be lifetime members of our community. Uh, How do we celebrate those accomplishments instead of immediately saying, okay, let's go on to the next one. So that's one thing that I think one needs to do. How do we go ahead and take the time that doesn't make it feel cheesy, doesn't make it feel corporatized? We're not going to give you some goofy, stupid certificate. One of the things I do is spend a lot of my time showing up at the smaller staff meetings across the college. And I do it because I sincerely say thank you. I've heard about your accomplishments and I want to say thank you. That's part of it. That's also about thanking people in surprising ways. With this admissions team I mentioned, I was talking with the vice president of admissions and said, How can I buy this team lunch? That's delivered to their homes right now. So they can have lunch together and they can feel like they're in that space. So, how do you express that gratitude? Is one way. I think the other way is to really embrace no such thing as a dumb idea. Let's hear it, let's be open to it. I'm going to go back to your earlier question about kind of difficult leadership decisions. And it's one that you and I certainly talked about as we've worked together, but one that took me a while, which is that when I I wrote an essay back a year ago, last November, called Leading with Panic, Why Leaders Need to Be More Open About Anxiety, which detailed my struggles with having a severe panic disorder and how I only mentioned that to a few people, very few family members, very few friends knew about my 20-year-plus struggle with severe anxiety. And in some ways, it was probably one of my more terrifying moments before I hit publish because i realized it had the potential to have a profound impact on my relationships but i'm fortunate to have phenomenal colleagues in all sorts of different realms and jamie bennett from our place america who i have such admiration and respect for and has been a phenomenal thought partner i remember emailing him saying i'm thinking about doing this and i'd love to get your thoughts and he provided some fantastic critical feedback on the essay itself but he also said once you do this, you can't take it back. You have to be prepared for that. And This will be something that will define you. And he said, it's not a bad thing, but you have to be aware of that. It's interesting to be a new leader in a community where it's easy to, to trod down the same path that other leaders have come before you. In some ways, the most difficult decision is to realize that there are board members that assisted in hiring you. There are staff members that are looking up to you, but to go ahead and say that my version of leadership is different. I remember so distinctly, they have a meeting with two VPs right after it. And I said, Hey, I just want you to know you'll be seeing that I published this essay. And my assumption is some people are going to talk about it. And they said, what's it about? I, I explained what it was about. Vulnerability and contemplation are two leadership qualities that are so important and they're so overlooked. The goal was to take a disability or take what seems like a disability and reframe it as an asset for communication and for greater empathy. I think it took me 48 hours after I was done before I actually hit publish. It felt like for 48 hours, my finger was hovering over the the publish button because it's a one-way valve that you're closing to a certain degree.
0: That sounds terrifying. And yet what a relief to get that out there. By pushing Publish, you really lived out your values of being a vulnerable leader. What was the response out there and at MCAD?
1: The response was overwhelmingly positive. It opened up so many dialogues. I had All these people wanted to talk about their own experiences with anxiety. And the love and support I got from the chair of our board when I gave him the heads up, hey, just to let you know, this is going out there, was fantastic. I also got some individuals that said, What are you trying to do? What's your aim here? I had someone say, people don't know a lot about you in this community, and now they know this, and how does that make you feel? And I said, it makes me feel okay, because... If we can't be honest with ourselves, then what does that say about our leadership? You can't just simply use the word empathy. Empathy requires you to show a little bit of yourself. But I appreciate it was criticality from some about oversharing. This is oversharing. This is taking your own personal dirty laundry and airing it for the sake of a couple likes on Medium.
0: What has given you the strength and perspective to pull through times of difficulty? I mean, what are the moments or things or people from your past that have helped shape you?
1: It's funny, the way you're even asking that makes me think that if I could have two days and a bunch of thank you cards, I, I feel like that there are just so many people I should write notes to and thank because I've just been fortunate to have some phenomenal teachers in my life and people that had such generosity. And I don't think I've ever taken that time just to go ahead and express that. And it, just hearing you ask that makes me immediately think I'm a composite of... All these incredible people, whether it's Ken Strickland, the the dean at the Memphis College of Art, who gave me my first real leadership job running the MFA program, or a ceramicist named Jean-Pierre Laroque in Montreal, who was an incredible mentor and guide for me to understand my own poetics. There's so many people that have provided guidance and mentorship to me and still do. I'm part of what's called the Association for Independent Colleges of Art and Design, And they just started a a mentorship group specifically to see how people of color can find themselves in leadership. How can they get support? I'm excited to be a part of that. I've been assigned this mentorship group. Mentorship is one of these words that has gotten bastardized over time. It's gotten to mean people with more experience giving advice to people with less experience, which is totally bogus. It's about people with different life experiences and different perspectives sharing with each other and everyone learning with each other. And I feel that because I saw the group that I was assigned and I know some of these people and I look up to these people and here I am. They're supposed to be my mentorship group. I have as much to learn from all of these people. And I pity the person that still thinks mentorship means i've got tons of experience and i'm going to let you know what that experience is so just stay there and listen and take notes
0: and what about yourself how do you take care of yourself
1: it is tough for me i cook i like to cook and if i didn't cook i think i would probably lose my mind what's sad is it's how i used to bring people together people that don't necessarily see eye to eye bring them over for lunch have them help you make homemade pasta it's one thing to exchange snipe emails it's another thing to help me roll this out And then keep talking about those issues. I'm not saying it's a miracle and these problems go away immediately, but it does help. It is a connector. It is an intentional process trying to feel like we can see our best selves. I go for walks and now I'm starting to meet other people for walks. And that's been one of the sanity measures for me.
0: How has your experience as a person of color prepared you or influenced your leadership? Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: First and foremost, this is who I am. This is all I know. But I think we also have to go ahead and make sure we dispense with this notion that liberal somehow is devoid of cultural biases. Liberalism uh, has plenty of racialized stereotypes, plenty of cultural, colonial kind of misgivings. And whether it's The simple question of where are you from? And I say upstate New York, no, no, where are you really from? Oh, your English is really good. Right, I tried to remove the Rochester accent as much as possible. So it's the microaggressions. It's the four S's on your boarding pass that gives you extra security screening. Those pieces add up. In general, leadership And in particular, leadership here deals with a tremendous degree of white privilege, especially when you're dealing with a board of trustees, when you're dealing with broader donor communities, where you are going in supplication for some of these resources that you need because you want the endowed professorship for your institution. You want the leadership institute for BIPOC designers. You want these things. So you you are playing this game and that game can be really exhausting. I didn't grow up with a family that had a membership to a private club. I speak at private clubs a lot, or I have. And I always feel a little bit like the sheep in wolf's clothing, which I feel like I'm turning that around a little bit. There are times when you do feel like you're an interloper. I had such a great, fantastic mentor to me is someone named Ben Vincent. And Ben Vincent's currently the acting president at Case Western in Cleveland. And he and I worked together at GW, dynamic African-American scholar, phenomenally resourceful and positive, even in the the most, like the throw up your hands in the air and start screaming at the top of your lungs moments. And he would be phenomenally positive. Talk about someone that would lean in and listen. And I would just see him go into these environments with donors and talking and schmoozing. And I remember once at the end of one of these evenings, and he's someone that doesn't drink and this individual trying to ply him with alcohol and me surreptitiously taking his glasses. Anyways, and we talked about the exhaustion and he said, oh man, it's so exhausting. And it was just okay just to talk to someone else that said, yep, it's exhausting. It's not just you. And being able to have that space to say, yep, code switching is exhausting pretending to exist in an environment where you really don't feel like you've got that context. And then how is it changing you? How is that constant switching changing you? Yeah, You hear about people that are in espionage and how they go into an environment and remove their other identity and pretend to be someone else. Probably with leadership in predominantly white privileged communities, there's a point in time where You're like, this isn't the authentic me, but this is the me I'm putting on here, and I can try to connect with you. I've always been the awkward kid. And since I was always the kid that didn't fit in, my grades were never quite good enough that I was never considered to be part of the geek culture in high school. I was never athletic enough that I could be considered part of the jocks. And so it it was a tough experience. I think I'm probably just more comfortable with my awkwardness now.
0: How do you as a leader navigate white privilege?
1: It's about trying to be at home with yourself. White privilege isn't disparaging individuals, but it's saying that this is a culture that you're around and you can still share the same political values, but that doesn't mean it's still not difficult. There's a different set of standards. There's something different when in an executive evaluation, you're told to laugh more or smile more. I'm not sure that's something that a white male says to another white male. And, and it's done within the guise of saying, I'm here to help you be more successful. But at the same time, there is that double standard. I'm also president of a college under 50, and that comes with a kind of a reverse ageism or a type of ageism. So I would say there are some incredible liberties that are taken oftentimes with people of color under the guise of trying to help them say, what is it you need? Instead of saying, this is how I can help you.
0: Sanji, thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed your honesty and candor throughout all of these critical leadership themes.
1: This has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Great to chat with you again, as always.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Silva. I hope you enjoy my conversation. To learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness, check out my website at www.winniedasilva.com or you can email me at winnie at I'd also love to connect with you on LinkedIn. Reach out and tell me what was helpful about today's episode or tell me about any other suggestions you have for my show. I look forward to sharing another transformative conversation with you next week.